0: So last week, we brought up this idea of drawing a moral line. We like to draw moral lines. I think everybody likes to draw moral lines because it helps us know what we can get away with. Rarely does someone draw a moral line so that they can turn and run away from the line. Like, that's the line right there. I want nothing to do with that line. Let me run as far away from that line as I can. Most people that draw moral lines, draw moral lines because they want to know what they can get away with. And so most of the time, when we're drawing moral lines, we're drawing those lines and we're running up to the line. Because it's all about what we can get away with. How much can I get away with? And so last week we introduced this idea because Jesus talked about, that, you have heard it said, Thou shalt not murder, the sixth commandment, right? And so the Pharisees took that, and they were like, awesome, there's the moral line, thou shalt not murder. I can run right up to that line, and maybe I don't murder anyone, but I can hate them, I can abuse them, I can do all kinds of evil things and still be considered righteous. So oftentimes we draw those moral lines because we want to know what we can get away with. So the object then is not God and glorifying God, but what can I get away with? The object then is not, what is God calling me to do? The question isn't, what is God calling me to do in this situation? But what can I get away with? And so just like we talked about last week, drawing this moral line actually makes our, takes our eyes off of God and fixes them on our behavior takes our eyes off of God, and fixes them on what we are doing. And human religion is constantly trying to change behavior. Human religion is all about behavior modification, and it's all about what can we get away with. So human religion is constantly drawing these lines, and then playing around, right next to the line, dancing, maybe even on top of the line, just so that they can say they're righteous. And it's all about what people would call behavior modification. It's not about true heart change. It's about making ourselves look better, feel better, act better. Because we know that. the the devastating consequences of jumping over that line, right? We drew this moral line because we know, culturally we know, personally we know, that if we allow murder to happen in society, then our culture collapses. If we allow adultery, if we allow all these things where we draw the line, our culture collapses. So there, there seems like there's a benefit there, right? But Paul in Colossians says That this human religion, which seems to have wisdom, actually has no value against the desires of the flesh. Your heart, my heart, is desperately wicked. It has these desires. And so we draw these lines thinking that these lines can actually control our desire. When actually, it does nothing against those desires. The lines that we draw will never cure your wicked heart. And will never cure my wicked heart either. Now some people will hear me talk about this, about not drawing these moral lines, and they'll say, you must not take sin seriously, Aaron. Come on, we have to draw moral lines. Otherwise, how do we know what we can do and what we can't do? You definitely don't take sin seriously. You must not really love God if you will tolerate sinful behavior. To that I would reply, it's not that I don't take sin seriously. Oh, I know the devastating impacts of sin. I know how sin kills. But I also know that the only way to be free from sin is to be so focused on God, you no longer think about sin. You will never hate your sin enough to be free from it. You'll never hate your sin enough to no longer be a slave to it. The only way you can be free from sin is by focusing your eyes on God. For example, this is an example that Jen and I like to use a lot. Nobody, I challenge, actually I should say this, I challenge everybody right now to not think about pink elephants. They're pink, they're elephants, that's weird, right? A big pink elephant, maybe wearing a tutu, I don't know, but don't think about pink elephants, Don't do it, don't you dare let a pink elephant pop into your mind right now. If you do, if you let a pink elephant pop into your mind right now, you are an utter failure. And if you fail at this task, you will need to go to the dark room of shame. And you will stay in that dark room of shame until you can not think about pink elephants for long enough. Who knows how long that could be? It could be weeks, it could be months. But you stay in that dark room of shame until you haven't thought about a pink elephant for a week. And then you can start to come out of that, pink, that dark room of shame. But as you come out, you better not think about pink elephants. Wearing tutus. Dancing. How many of you have already failed at that? How many of you have already thought about pink elephants? I definitely have. I have a picture of a pink elephant in my mind right now. No matter how hard I try not to, it just keeps popping up. Because we're thinking about pink elephants. And so how can you not think about it when when that is what is on your mind? Now that's the negative example, right? When you're told not to think about pink elephants, you think about pink elephants. But what about the positive example? So instead of thinking about pink elephants, I want everyone to think of their favorite praise song. It might be a hymn. It might be a more contemporary praise song. What are the lyrics? Are you thinking about the lyrics? How does it describe God? One of my favorites that I've been listening to over and over again, it's David Crowder, the the album Remedy. During a horrible time of my life, that album had just came out. And it was on repeat over and over and over again. You make everything glorious. You make everything glorious. What am I? I am yours, so what does that make me? What an amazing song about how great God is and how he has made you to be his masterpiece. It's awesome, isn't it? Or another one that I absolutely love is Come Thou Fount. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Man, does that describe me. I do that all the time. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. Oh God, even though I'm prone to wonder, you love me so much. Are you thinking about your favorite worship praise song? Are you thinking about those lyrics and how God is, how great God is? Now, as you think about these lyrics, were you also still thinking about pink elephants? Or did those lyrics help push that thought out of your mind? How many of you might have started off thinking about pink elephants a little bit, but the more you thought about the lyrics, the less you thought about pink elephants. That's how transformation works. Stop thinking about your sin. Stop thinking you have to punish yourself for your sin. And start focusing on God. And as you do that, you will actually sin less. You can't overcome your sin by thinking about your sin. The only way to overcome sin is to focus on God. And as you do that, the sin that had control over you will no longer have control over you. So that's what we talked about last week. And this week we're going to continue this confrontation with the idea of drawing moral lines. Last week we learned about the Pharisees, how they thought they were righteous because they had never murdered. And Jesus shows them that even though they had never murdered, they were still guilty because they had hated. This would have been like a gut punch to the Pharisees, right? They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the super special, religious, righteous people of the day. And if they're not righteous... Who can be? And Jesus is like punching him in the gut like, hey, look, just because you drew that line and you never crossed that line doesn't make you righteous. And it should be kind of a gut punch for the church throughout the centuries of the church. Because throughout the centuries of the church, that there have been people in the church who have drawn this line of, I don't murder, so I'm righteous, and yet gotten away with hating people. Even in our country today, in the church today, we see Christians who have drawn the line of murder and said, I haven't murdered, so I'm super righteous, although they are hating people. And if I talk about this right now, you can think of different groups of people in our country that Christians are known for hating. But hey, we're righteous because we never killed anyone, right? It should be a gut punch, and it should be a wake-up call. So today we'll examine the moral lines of adultery, lust, and divorce. Really light topics, right? As we continue our series called Following. We called it Following because Jesus is preaching a sermon, and I think it's always important to remind us that this is a sermon. We like to break it up because we can't preach through the whole sermon in one setting. Well, maybe we will at the very end. But it would take a long time, and we might just skim over it. But this is a sermon, and it's all connected, and Jesus is confronting the religious legalism of the day. The religious legalism, the human religion that said, I am righteous because I do these things, and it's all about behavior modification, and we can just forget about our our wicked desires because we've modified our behavior. And Jesus is confronting this idea, and he's kind of, posing the question to the multitudes. If you remember, he's preaching. There's his disciples who are already believers. Then beyond that, there are the multitudes. And beyond the multitudes are the super special religious people of the day, the Pharisees. And he's preaching to them, and he's posing this question. Will you follow the religious legalism of the day? Or will you follow Jesus? And that's the question that we are posed with today. But we'll pick up in... For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're picking back up, and last week we talked a little bit, as we studied his teaching on anger, we talked about how he has this, you have heard it said, but I say formula. Now this was a formula that religious leaders of the day used to give a correct teaching. So they might introduce a certain teaching, you have heard it said. This was the incorrect teaching, but I say to you, here is the correct teaching. Now what's interesting about this is that Jesus is actually quoting Old Testament, and he's not correcting the old testament. It's not that the old testament was the problem. It was the interpretation and application of the old testament. And that's one of the most important things that we can take away from this is our application can be messed up. We can have even right interpretation but have wrong application. So we really need to examine scripture. We need to grab the principles and apply them correctly to our lives. So he begins this with that same formula, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now this is last week was commandment number 6 out of the 10 commandments. This is commandment number 7. It's found in Exodus 20:14. It's also found in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy the the name actually means like second and it's just a repeat I shouldn't say it's just, but it is a repeat of the law. So to help get an understanding of this, in Exodus, God makes a covenant with Israel. And it's, a, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's based off of if-then statements. And it's basically like this. If you are faithful to me, and then he gives all these ways that can be faithful to him, then I will bless you. But if you are unfaithful and you turn towards other gods, then I will raise up another nation to discipline you. So that's Exodus, right? That's the Mosaic Covenant. That's the if-then statements. And then what happens? You get numbers, you get a census, and they're going to go into the promised land, but they send out some scouts. The scouts come back and they say, these guys are way too big. There's no way we can take these guys on. And God says, okay, you unfaithful generation, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you all die off. And then the next generation who are faithful will get the promised land. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They die off. The new generation is in there, and that's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is simply God reaffirming the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. So that's why a lot of the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy. That's why a lot of the law is repeated in Deuteronomy, because it's simply God reaffirming that covenant with a believing generation who he's going to give the promised land to. So we've got Exodus. And we've got Deuteronomy. And it's pretty straightforward, just like murder was last week. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So the problem isn't with the Old Testament law. The problem is with the way that law was applied in that day. And I think the way our hearts can still twist the law. So I think part of that idea, just like last week, was you draw a hard line, don't commit adultery, and everyone on this side of that line is righteous, and everyone on that side of the line are despicable and disgusting. And that was part of the application. They thought that because they had never committed adultery, they were better than those over there. And who cares how wicked my heart is? At least I'm not like those scumbags. Jesus is saying, You guys have messed this up. You got wicked hearts. So you haven't committed adultery. Now, the term adultery means to have sex with a married woman. Now, both fornication, to have sex with someone who is not your spouse, and adultery were wrong. But this law specifically applies to having sex with someone else's spouse. So the idea of the day was adultery was wrong because it was stealing another man's spouse. This made it all about wronging the married man. It ignored the other parts or the other parties that would be hurt. It ignored the kids who would live in a broken home. It ignored the woman who, although had her part to play in it, was also hurting in the midst of it all. It ignored the community that was hurt by adultery because strong communities are built by strong marriages. So I should back that up and say, strong families are built by... Let me reverse. Strong marriages build strong families, build strong communities. Marriage, God intended to be the building block of society. And when we rip marriage apart, we will see... Society begin to fail. So when we commit adultery and we rip marriages apart, we're actually undermining society as well. So often people think that there are very few victims of their sin. It's just me and her. What's the big deal? The big deal is that although it's you and her, it's actually affecting the entire community. So, it, it was ignoring the entire community aspect of it. Now, remember, the Old Testament law wasn't ignoring that. It was the application that the Pharisees had during that day that was ignoring all of these other factors. And most of all, it ignored the fact that adultery is a sin against God. So it was thought of as a sin against one other man, and that was it. But it was a sin against God. It's taking something God had called good, marriage, and it was tearing it apart. So Jesus here is using the you have heard, but I say formula to give us the correct way to view adultery and righteousness. Righteousness. So they had drawn this line, right? And they could play however they wanted. They could have as wicked of a heart as they wanted, as long as they didn't steal another man's wife. And then Jesus gives that correct teaching in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's it. Count me out. I'm done. I'm not righteous. How many of you thought you'd hear your pastor confess to lustful thoughts today? Probably not many. But once again, Jesus cuts to the heart of the problem, and the heart isn't just adultery. It's a desire that is longs for adultery. It's a desire for someone else's wife. It's a desire... For someone who isn't your wife. And every single one of us has committed this sin. Every single one of us, myself included, has looked upon someone else with lust. So this lustful intent is to look with the purpose of arousing sexual desire. That's literally what it means. It means to look with the purpose of arousing sexual desire. And I think that's helpful for us to know, because it's not just recognizing beauty, right? It's not just seeing someone and quickly turning your head or bouncing your eyes. That may be temptation, but it's not exactly lust. And I think it's important for us to note that temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet is without sin, So what Jesus is getting at here is when you are looking at someone with the intent of sexual arousal. Not just that you see someone that you could have sexually, that could sexually arouse you, but you look at them with that specific intent. Now, I think this is really important for us to understand because the application here is when you see a beautiful woman walking by and you recognize that beauty... That it doesn't necessarily mean you are looking with lust. But it's when you look again to arouse yourself sexually, that is lust. So when you're hiking Fat Man's Loop, and here comes the trail runner with that perfectly sculpted body, wearing almost nothing, I don't know why that's a trend right now, but it is a trend, so wearing almost nothing, what do you do? What do you do in that moment? You've recognized it. Do you press on? Do you enjoy the beautiful scenery of Flagstaff? Or do you look again? Do you let that temptation begin to control your eyes? So when you first saw her, you might have felt a release of dopamine, and that's a chemical in your brain that makes you feel good. Did you feel that release of dopamine and think, whoa, I better look at that beautiful pine tree right there. Or did you like the hit of dopamine that you just received and thought, I'd like another one, please? And so you look back again. That second look, that's the lustful intent. When you got the hit of dopamine and you said, I really enjoyed that hit of dopamine, I would like another. So you look again with the intent for that sexual arousal, that is looking with lust That is looking with intent to arouse yourself sexually. And that's the question at hand that Jesus has. Not, did you see a beautiful woman? But how did you view her? And did you continue to look so that you could continue to get that hit of dopamine? I think it's important for us because on this topic, a lot of women have been hurt and a lot of women have been shamed for their beauty. And I think it's important for us to notice that Jesus is not addressing the ladies here. He's not saying, hey ladies, if a man looks at you with lustful intent, with with an intent to sexually arouse themselves, you have already committed adultery with him. But he puts it all on the man here. Now, I think it's important for us to say that there is appropriate dress for women. There is modi- a modest address dress for women, and that is addressed other places in Scripture. So there are other places in Scripture that, that addresses how women dress. But every time Jesus talks about lust, every time lust is spoken of, it's actually directed toward the person that is struggling with lust, not the person that is struggling with how they are dressed. So here in this sermon, Jesus is addressing the men with a principle we all need. And that principle is, others are not to blame for your sinful heart. We all struggle with this. We all have these sinful things in our hearts that other people give us an opportunity to bring out, right? So have you ever heard someone say, you made me so angry? Now, that person didn't make you angry. That person gave you some circumstances to let the anger out of your heart. But you have an angry heart. That's, what, that's your actual struggle. So no woman has ever made me lust. I have a lustful heart. And that's my struggle. And it's so, so important for us to understand. Because if we don't understand this, men, you will always struggle with Lust. You may blame women all you want, but the truth is there is no amount of modest dress that can take the lust out of your heart. You have a lustful heart. She might have given you an opportunity to let that lust come out, to express that lust, but your problem is you have a lustful heart. So you cannot in lust... With dress codes, there's no amount of burkas in this world, no amount of denim skirts in this world, no amount of loose-fitting coveralls in this world that can do it. Because a man with a lustful heart will still find a way to lust. Because lust is a heart problem. So men, if you're lusting out after women, it's because your heart is lustful, you cannot blame the woman. You have a heart issue that needs to be dealt with, and until you deal with that heart issue, you will never overcome lust. No matter how many lines you draw, no matter how many barriers you build, you have a heart issue. Quit blaming the woman for your heart issue. And until you deal with that issue, you will always be a slave to lust. And that, I think, is the point Jesus is getting at. You think you're righteous because you haven't stolen another man's wife. But you have heart issues you're not willing to deal with. You're going around lusting after all kinds of women. You have a lustful heart, a heart that's not set on God, a heart that's not focused on God, but a heart that is focused in on your own desires, And you've drawn this line, and you think because you're on this side of the line, and those people are on the others, that you're more righteous. And Jesus is totally debunking that idea. The truth is, every single one of us has lusted in some capacity. Every single one of us has looked at someone with a wrongful desire. And Jesus says that makes you just as unrighteous as the person who committed adultery. It's so easy to judge and condemn those people that have committed adultery and walk around with our nose in the air because we haven't. And Jesus is drawing a line here that should be another gut punch, right? He's saying, no, look, you're not righteous either. You think you are, but you're just as wrong. To explain how dangerous this desire is, this thought pattern, this emotion, Jesus gives us two hyperbolic examples of what we should do. Verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I think Je- Jesus takes sin seriously. What do you think? He's talking about poking out eyes, cutting off hands. Now, I think this is also very hyperbolic. Uh, so that's an exaggeration, right? He's using exaggerated speech to prove a point, to drive a point home. One of the reasons why I think this is hyperbolic is there's another body part that's not mentioned that I think Jesus would recommend cutting off if it's causing you to sin, but you'll see that it's not there, right? So he's using hyperbole to drive home a point to say that sin is gross and we need to take sin seriously. Take it seriously. Take those actions that lead to adultery seriously. Take those actions that lead to sex outside of marriage and porn addiction and all kinds of other sexual activities that leave you enslaved. Take it seriously. Take action before you even get to the lust level. Deal with that heart issue before you begin lusting, before lust begins to have control over you. Don't play around with unhealthy desires. So much of Christian life is what's called sin management, that we think we can just manage our sin. And so we're like, I can handle a little bit of this sin, I can handle a little bit of that sin, that sin I can't handle, so I'm going to draw a line, and I won't step over the line to handle that sin, but I can kind of handle my sins on my own. In fact, I want to prove to God how much more I love him by handling my sin on my own. How many Christians have had that thought? To prove to God how much I love Him, I'm going to handle my sin. And so we get into this idea of sin management. And we think we can do just a little. And what Jesus is totally debunking that, and He's saying, don't just draw a line. Because when you draw this line here at adultery and you think you can play over here, you'll actually end up in adultery. When you draw a line at adultery and you think, but it's okay if I steal looks at girls. Let's say my wife isn't around and there's a beautiful young girl walking around. I can just steal that look. It's not even going to hurt my wife because she's not here. And Jesus is saying that will eventually lead to adultery. You'll start getting used to stealing those looks and eventually you might even look at her while well, your wife is around and then you'll get used to that and you'll keep creeping closer and closer to the line and then you'll dance on the line until you've stepped over it i was talking with a guy who had had an affair and this is exactly how it went down it started out with checking out the other woman she was a coworker she was beautiful his wife wasn't around She couldn't be offended, right? She she wouldn't be hurt if I just snuck a couple peeks here and there. So it's good. It's all right. No harm, no foul, right? But after stealing a couple looks, that no longer satisfied. And so then crept in a little bit of flirtation. Once again, it's just at work. So it's okay. I won't go any further. My wife will never know, so she'll never actually be hurt by this flirtation I have with this other girl. And since it's at work, it can't go any further. And you know what? My wife doesn't really get me right now. She doesn't understand what I go through at work, but this girl does. So it's okay for me to confide in her. And the line, he he got closer to the line. Now, he thought he was righteous. He had saved himself for marriage. He hadn't had sex until he was married, right? So he was righteous. Not like those sinners that had sex and messed up before they got married. So he just played around on this side of the line. And then the first kiss happened. And he had been playing around with the line for so long And when I asked him about that first kiss, I said, what were you thinking? And he said, in all honesty, I was thinking, I can't believe I'm going to get away with this. That's what happens when you draw the line and you're focused on the line. Is eventually you run up to the line and you say, I'll get away with crossing the line. but he actually didn't get away with it. Oh, he could have hidden it from his wife for years. But that sin that he was flirting with, he became a sin to, or sorry, he became a slave to. So he was a slave to that sin. That sin owned him, and it ate away at him, until eventually at one point he thought the only way out Was by killing himself. He thought that was the only way to escape this sin that he innocently flirted with. Quotation marks on innocent. Innocently flirted with. Was now the only way out, was through suicide. And that's what sin management does. That's how sin management operates. That's what drawing a line and thinking that if, as long as I'm on this side of the line, I remain righteous does. Now, what's amazing about this man's story is that he eventually confessed to his wife, who by the grace of God was able to forgive him. And it wasn't all roses and flowers at first. There was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of forgiveness that had to be done. But what's amazing about his story is that although he had broken things, what we break, God can restore. And now they'll tell you that their their marriage is better than it was before. Their marriage is the best it's ever been. Because what we break, God can restore. And when you give that broken thing to God, you'll be amazed at what he can do with it. So the point Jesus is making, in a very shocking way, is to take sin seriously. And I think Jesus is endorsing moral standards here. He doesn't say, you're so depraved, you should go act like you're depraved, right? But the difference is, with the the line, when we draw the line, and the focus is on the line, the idea is... What can I get away with? I've drawn the line here. So what can I get away with on this side of the line? But with Jesus and his boundaries, the boundaries are a recognition that sin will enslave us. So I want to stay away from sin. It's not, let me draw the line to find out what I can get away with. It's, anything that is against God is a sin and I want to run away from anything that is against God. For most of us, this means changing the way we live, not having certain social medias on our phone, not having access to certain things when other people aren't around. Maybe it means not going to certain places during the summer for some of us guys. When I was a program director at a summer camp, we used to blast the AC during chapel because we knew people would wear more clothes. Maybe it means not watching the show that all of your friends are watching, that all of your friends keep talking about, because you know for you that that show is just going to lead to harmful things. The point is we need to take sin seriously not that we are sin-focused, but that we begin to set up personal boundaries and we run away from anything that might be in rebellion against God. Not that we draw a line that we think can make us more holy. and I, You're not more holy because you don't have Instagram. You're not more holy because you don't watch certain shows. But you might be wise if you stay off of Instagram. You might be wise if you don't watch certain shows. Having boundaries does not make you more righteous, but it can be but it can be wise to do. So we have a lot of young people who are dating or thinking about dating. What does this look like for you? Again, the problem with drawing a line is that by drawing a line, oftentimes it's so you know what you can do. I can't tell you how many young people I have seen that have asked the question, where's the line? When I'm dating, where's the line? I want to know the line so that I don't cross it. And that's the wrong question. Because really you could reframe that as, what can I get away with? Where's the line? Could also be rephrased as, what can I get away with? And so the real question that they're asking is, how far can I go? And the problem with that thinking is, you're focused in on fulfilling your own sexual desires. How much can I touch this other person? How much can we kiss? And your whole focus is on your own sexual desire and fulfilling your own sexual desire. So you need to ask a different question, and that is, what has God called me to? How do I live my life in obedience to God? And you might even have some of the same behavioral effects, but the difference is your focus. And when your focus is on how much can I fulfill myself sexually without becoming unrighteous, eventually you will fail. I don't know a single person that ask the question where do i draw the line so i can run up to it and actually stay on the righteous side of the line you will always fail when you're staring at the line so there is some wisdom as you date to be obedient to God, to follow what he has called you. In the Song of Solomon, one of the conclusions is, do not arouse love until it so pleases. I absolutely love that line. The Song of Solomon is such a fantastic book, and uh, you should probably be a little bit older before you read it, but it's all about how great God's gift of sex is. It's all about how great God's gift of marital sex can be. So, he says, so So, she says, do not arouse love until it so pleases. And basically that advice is, don't start getting physical until it's appropriate. Because once you begin to get physical, it's very difficult to turn it off. Once you've had that kiss, then that's the new line. I've known so many people that have said, I'm never going to kiss until, until, I get, until my wedding night. That'll be my first kiss, my wedding night. And then they have the kiss. Oh, well, that felt really good. Young people who have not kissed, I'll be honest with you, kissing feels good. There's a reason why people like to do it. And then they get kind of, then you get used to the kissing, right? And the kissing gets more intense and more intense, and pretty soon hands are flying. And you get used to where your hands are being positioned, and it gets more intense and more intense, and pretty soon you're crossing all kinds of lines that you thought you had drawn hard on. And and your focus has always been on how can I fulfill myself sexually. So that's why that's, why that's, that's the thought. Do not arouse love until it so pleases. Once you begin to get physical, you, it's hard to turn off. It's difficult to turn that off. So if you can't get to a place where marriage is on the horizon my piece of advice to you is don't turn that physical, physicalness on. If, if, if you can't be married, why on earth would you tempt yourself by flipping that switch? So I think that's, that's appropriate advice, right? That's wisdom. And if you focus on the line, I guarantee you'll cross it. So let the focus not be on the line, but what God has called you to. Let the focus be on God. Let the focus be on honoring God and if you focus in on honoring God in your relationships, you will do much better. Not that you will be perfect, but you will do much better. He continues on, picking up in verse 31. It was said. It was also said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But it, but I say to you that everyone who divorces. His wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever married, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So once again we've got this, you have heard it said, but I say to you, formula, right? Now in this example, Jesus is quoting from Genesis or sorry, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it to us real quick. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in if she then finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or the latter man dies, this is like, wow, what a scenario, right? Can we dream up something so complicated? Who took her to be his wife? Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance. At first reading, from our cultural perspective, we are like, what? Huh? What did you say here? All kinds of questions come up, right? So I think it's helpful for us to to understand the culture of the time. So before this law was written, women were thought of as property. And a man could divorce her for any reason. In fact, you might not even say that he divorced her. A man could just leave and abandon his wife at any moment. Just like he might abandon a vehicle. A car. In those days, maybe your horse. You didn't like the way your horse operated, you couldn't get good enough money for your horse, so you would just leave your horse, right? And you could leave her without giving her a certificate of divorce, which would mean that she would still be considered your property, even though he already abandoned her. So then years later, he could come back and force her to be his wife again because she was considered his property. So if a husband left a wife, no one would marry her because at any time the first husband could come back and claim her as his own. So when we understand that cultural custom. The idea behind this law isn't an abuse of women. It's actually to protect women. A husband was no longer to treat her like his property. And if he handed her a certificate of divorce, she could actually have the certificate that says, he no longer owns me. I actually have freedom to get remarried. So if another man found interest in her, whereas before he might be like, whoa, I'm not going to invest anything in you because this other man can come back to you. Now there's freedom there where he can say, okay, I can marry you now. Because this man has no more claim to you. So you see that this law is actually a freedom-giving law. Now a century before Jesus, two rabbis, Hillel and Shema, had a debate centering on the term has found some indecency in her. So this law all, it all centers around this idea of indecency, right? So there was this big debate about what does this term indecency mean? Hillel defined indecency as anything you don't like. She didn't cook food right. Write her certificate of divorce. You found a better looking girl. Her hair turned gray. Certificate of divorce. Oh, I didn't know she had this weird mole. Certificate of divorce. You could divorce her for anything. No fault divorce has been around almost as long as marriage has been around. Now, Shema defined some indecency simply as adultery. That was it. Now, the, adultery, the Shema group had actually kind of lost the debate by the time Jesus was on the scene. And so, what was happening was several of the super special righteous religious people, the Pharisees, had been writing certificates of divorce for any reason. Now, I haven't committed adultery, but I lust. So, but I'm still righteous, right? And I I have written a certificate of divorce. I didn't like my wife. She made the worst meal of my life. It was horrible. So I wrote her a certificate of divorce, but hey, it's back in the law of Moses, so I'm still righteous. That was the idea. That was what was happening. So they had twisted a law that was actually meant to protect women, and they had twisted it so that they could abuse women. So Jesus, a century later, enters back into this debate. And once again, the Pharisees feel the sting of getting called out not only have they lessened marriage, but they've also been committing adultery because they have been forcing their wives out. And before we go any further, I think it's important to note that we live in a culture that is full of divorce. I know there are divorced people here in this building. And whenever I meet a divorced person that runs into this, or oftentimes, I'll, I'll talk to a divorced person and they'll quote this specific passage with no hope. And I think the context helps us. The Pharisees thought they could get away with having a no fault divorce, and this is confronting that idea. It's also important for us to recognize God's grace no sin is too great, that He can't restore it Jesus is confronting religious hypocrites that think they're better even though they're writing certificates of divorce for any reason and Jesus absolutely hates divorce divorce is ugly divorce is messy divorce hurts it hurts people it hurts children it hurts communities divorce goes against God's intended purpose for marriage Yet in the midst of all the ugliness of our sin, God's grace abounds. If you've been hurt by divorce, God's grace is enough for you. God's grace can restore and rebuild even after divorce. Every time I recall my failures and shortcomings, I come back to 1 Corinthians 6. In in the church in Corinth, there were all these nasty sinners, right? And they were doing all these crazy sins, and then they came to know Christ. And Paul writes them, and he gives them this long list of all these behaviors that they did that we would think, wow, that's disgusting. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. Essentially, what he's saying is, you might think that you're the dirtiest, ugliest, nastiest sinner on earth. But the second you put your faith and trust in Christ, he made you holy, he made you righteous, he made you pure. If you're struggling with the hurt of divorce, know that when you put your trust in Christ and his work on the cross, you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified, and he has made you whole again. If you have been divorced and remarried, the idea is not that you are committing adultery. The idea that Jesus was driving home is that just because you write a certificate of divorce like Moses allowed doesn't mean you are doing what God desired in marriage. And that's actually the point of all of this. With Jesus, with each teaching, Jesus is, keeps upping the bar, right? Not many of us have ever struggled with murder. More of us have struggled with adultery and divorce. Just when you think you've worked hard enough or twisted the law enough, just when you think you have earned your righteousness, Jesus reminds us that we can't ever work hard enough for it. We can't earn it. You can't be made righteous on your own by your own behavior, and that's the point. The only way to be made right with God, to be the person God created you to be, is to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And when you do that, when you come to the end of yourself, when you quit shaking your fist at God saying, forget you God, I want to be my own God and I'll draw a line and I'll dance wherever I want. But when you finally realize that no matter where you draw the line, you have sinned against God, you have messed it up, you are not righteous. And you come before a holy God and you say, God, I've messed up but I recognize that you came to this earth and you paid the price for my sin and you put your faith in him. He makes you holy. He makes you righteous. He makes you pure. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that it's not dependent upon us, but upon you. That there's nothing we could do to ever earn it, but you've already done the work. All we have to do is simply believe. To put our faith and trust in you. And we pray that you would help us to stop drawing lines so we know where we can dance. Stop drawing lines so that we uh, could get away with all kinds of sin. But to simply be focused on you. And as we focus on you more and more, our behavior would start to line up more with what you've called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.